He has been gone for 14 months, and we're still trying to figure out what to do without him. I'm talking about the modest giant of Winnipeg architecture, David Penner. He died suddenly of a heart attack on January the 7th, 2020. He was just 61. Today on Prairie Design Lab, we honor his legacy. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, where David Penner both studied and taught. This podcast was also created with the help of David Penner and many other graduate students, faculty, and allies of the most experienced architecture faculty in Western Canada. I remember meeting at Pizzeria Gusto in Winnipeg with David Penner in his capacity as the founder of Storefront Manitoba in late December 2019. He died three weeks later. We had a freewheeling brainstorming session about what a podcast could accomplish. He, in his classic style, was very open and encouraging. He had a vision for what it could accomplish. Thanks to David, his vision lives on in this podcast and in so many other ways. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Welcome to episode 21 called David. To honor David's memory, I spoke to two people who worked and played very closely with him for many years. Edward Epp is a recently retired associate professor in the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba and the former chair of the Environmental Design Program. Dan Wolfram is the president of Wolfram Engineering of Winnipeg. I began by asking Edward Epp about his first encounter with David Penner. I had moved to Winnipeg with my uh, partner Jane and daughter on the request of Herb Enns, who asked me to come and teach sessionally in the Department of Architecture, which is where I eventually wound up staying. And uh, shortly thereafter, I got a call from the Canadian Architect, and they asked me to write an article about uh, Winnipeg architecture. So that would have been in 1995. And so I made a short list of buildings that I thought were important. There was a whole series of Significant works emerging in the early 90s. Of course, David Penner's residence was among those projects that I wanted to see. So I had the occasion to go to his home slash studio in Crescentwood, and uh, I was rather blown away. I, I, I had driven by it, but I'd never really taken stock of it closely. And, and you can imagine Crescentwood, uh, an affluent residential neighborhood of manicured lawns and stately homes and and i arrived at david's and what you what you see is a, a wooden boardwalk through a remnant oak savanna forest toward a residence which is composed of a pyramid a cube a cylinder an arrangement of platonic solids that are expressed through a formal vocabulary which derived from modernist as well as industrial, as well as agricultural and colonial styles, are you believe in indigenous sources, but what you're looking at is not a house so much, but rather an encampment. And so equally interesting was to go through the door and ascend a spiral staircase next to exposed ventilation ducts, OSB flooring, and so forth. Well, that was my first meeting with David. Dana, how did you first meet David Penner? 
Well, as a structural engineering consultant in Winnipeg, uh, we, of course, want to work with every architect we can ever set eyes on. So uh, David was just emerging, starting off his firm, been in business for a very short period of time on his own. We knew of him from his previous employer, Statues and Cates. He was a very talented designer. You could just tell from early on that uh, he was he was going to go places. So I had just uh, made a transition within my own company. I'd had a partner for a number of years, and he decided to leave and go to Eastern Canada. He had been my original connection to David Penner. So uh, he just kind of got dropped on me as well. Okay, here's a client you should try and uh, take care of and see what happens from there. Begin with, we had hardly anything going. He, because as a starting architect, you don't have a lot of work. But uh, we were just in the process of looking at building ourselves a new office building, and we just kind of asked them amongst ourselves in the office, "Well, who do you think we should go to?" You can so easily offend a lot of architects if you're a structural consultant, and you don't choose every one of them to be your uh, your architect for your own private project. So it was a it was a bit of a dicey choice, but we thought, well, we're going to go with somebody small. We're going to go with somebody creative. Why don't we give David Penner a shot? So we invited him over and started uh, sitting down and talking to him about the potential of doing uh, an office building for us. And and that was my real getting to know David period at that point in time. What was he like to work with? He had certain things he wanted to do in architecture, and he didn't let a lot of things get in the way of it. He had a client who wanted to build an apartment building on uh, River Avenue. It wasn't a giant project, but it was maybe five stories. And David had a particular vision of what he wanted the exterior of that building to look like. It was early on in the project, and I didn't actually get to meet the owner, but he kept saying, well, I'm having some difficulty with the owner, and I'm not really sure if he's receptive to what I want to do for the exterior elevations of this apartment building. But... If I don't come to an agreement with him and he won't go with what I've decided I want to do, I'm walking. Sure enough, he walked. He was willing to give up the project. I don't know if that was the only reason he left it, but he did walk and he ended up uh, losing it completely just to maintain his vision of what he wanted that building to look like. David had uh, a particular aesthetic sensibility and, and that was evident from his earliest time. It's really important to think back to the influences that David really embraced. You know, he um, studied at the University of Manitoba and the university was going through a transition. It was sort of modernism was on its way out and there were currents of of the postmodern entering. And he struggled in his graduate school years to appease the uh, sensibility of the department. And it caused him to become ill for a short period of time to regroup and to focus on those things that were important to him. And under the tutelage of the late Peter Forster and uh, Carl Nelson, he was able to find a way forward. And he did a remarkably radical postmodernist country club for a thesis project. But more importantly, he'd been reading, among others, uh, the work of Robert Venturi. And I think that that's a very important aspect in terms of putting his work into context. Robert Venturi wrote a book titled Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. It was published in 1966. 
it embraced a radically different new approach. And, and you know, if I may, I wouldn't mind if I could read just a very short passage from that. Yes. In his opening statements, and by the way, uh, Robert Venturi wrote this as a graduate thesis <clears throat> at Yale. Architects can no longer afford to be intimidated by the puritanically moral language of orthodox modern architecture. I like elements which are hybrid rather than pure, compromising rather than clean, distorted rather than straightforward, ambiguous rather than articulated, perverse as well as impersonal, boring as well as interesting, conventional rather than designed, accommodating rather than excluding, redundant rather than simple, vestigial as well as innovating, inconsistent and equivocal rather than direct and clear. I am for messy vitality over obvious unity. I include the non secure and proclaim the duality. And further, I am for richness of meaning rather than clarity of meaning for the implicit function as well as the explicit function. I prefer both and to either or. Black and white and sometimes gray to black or white. A valid architecture evokes many levels of meaning and combinations of focus. Its space and its elements become readable and workable in several ways at once. He advocated essentially for the difficult whole, and that is what motivated David throughout his practice. Where did you see those characteristics, the Venturi characteristics, show up in his work? What example would you give? I think most every building that uh, David took on sought to reaffirm the difficult whole because not only was he trying to meet the client's needs and the technical and material difficulties associated with that, which Dan could speak to far better than I, but he thought he had to evoke an architecture that responded to the greater civic good and to the built environment. Now, Dan, you worked with him both as a client. You hired him to design your Wolfram Engineering headquarters. Didn't he also design a cabin for you out on the flat stuff? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. We started talking about it before we got around to doing it in design. And we had a couple of basic ideas that we wanted to try and bring forward. One of them, of course, being recycling materials and hence the containers uh, for the container cottage. And then the whole concept of things were starting to get more and more high-tech, high-tech here and there. We thought, let's see if we can try and make something that comes in low-tech instead of high-tech and, and work in that direction for a while. So we talked about the containers and then we started getting serious and he went away for a while. We had decided we were going to try and utilize containers as much as we could. So we went away to do a bit of a preliminary design with it. And then he came back to my office and he walked back in with a number of images that he'd taken, as well as these little pieces of balsa wood, which were basically about an inch and a half long by one quarter inch square. And he had a stack of them. And he started laying in them in different configurations on my desk and said, well, I thought maybe we could try it this way. And uh, what do you think of this? And, and what he was basically doing was showing me how he planned to put these containers together to make it into something that we could call a cottage. And, and then he showed me some images of some of them, how he had stacked them and, and how they would stand freely on their own and so on. And we came up with one, which was just a gigantic big seesaw teeter-totter. 
with one container completely on end and a viewing platform on the top of it. We decided, yeah, this looks like something that would be interesting. The thing with David, and I think why he and I actually work together so well, was that I, I gave him the freedom to do what he wanted to do with his designs. I trusted him. I trusted that he would normally come back with something that would be interesting and I could live with. So that's what we did. Uh, I said, yeah, let's go with that. We did the configuration. He did some drawings. We did some structural to make it happen. I bought some containers. I found a welder and we got going on it. And uh, we came up with a very interesting cottage, which surprisingly the whole neighborhood didn't think very much of. It was just far too radical for anything on that little lake. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, we had a lot of fun designing it and building it. And to this day, I'm really proud to say that I had David Penner design that. I just recently sold it and I advertised it on that, in that vein saying, this cottage was designed by David Penner, the renowned architect. Is that the, the cottage with the fantastic cantilever? That's the one, cantilevers, yes, both ends. And at one time it was brilliant yellow, is that correct too? Still is, yes. <laughs> School bus yellow. <laughs> Did you have any experience with him in terms of, the, of a comedic side or was he more serious than perhaps I'm saying? I would just relay maybe an incident that came up when he was designing our uh, office building. His first attempt at it was a fairly rectilinear project. It, it uh, had a bunch of major rectangular structures stacked together. And it was quite an interesting looking structure, but he had previously already done a, an earlier design on a different concept when we were actually trying to renovate a small building to be an office. And in that concept, he had sloping walls and uh, trapezoidal shapes and so I said to David you know what David I, I think you could I think you could probably do better than this with the rectilinear stuff and so I, I may have been slightly offended I wasn't sure but he went away and then he came back about six weeks later with a complete design for my my office building which we basically built verbatim it was so good I just loved every part of it so we, we never changed the thing fast forward 10 years he comes into my office with these little pieces of, of balsa wood, uh, rectangular balsa wood, stacks them together, and we build a container cottage. And, and after I'm done, I'm thinking about it, thinking, you know, David, I think you got even with me. You, you incorporated those same rectangular shapes you started with on my office building 10 years earlier, and now you snuck it by and put it in on one of my buildings. And uh, I think in my mind, that was his little humorous revenge to me. He was clearly a very talented designer, why did he stay in Winnipeg when so many other architects whose careers are soaring say, I'm going somewhere bigger for bigger projects? That's an interesting question. David could see the world in a, in a drop of water on a piece of glass. And so everything was in David's world, the way he perceived it was kaleidoscopic. Whether you were in Winnipeg or in Paris, it, it really didn't matter as far as a civic setting went. And that's how he approached his work. I think he, he loved the prairies because it is one of the fundamental landscape types. It is the cosmic landscape. There is the land, the horizon, and the sky. The horizon was the datum for David's sensibility, really, you know, because on the earth was gravity and the sky, it was limitless. These were the ideas from where he could draw. And, and he was, in fact, drawn very much to, to the sky and to the landscape. And so that 
I think, affected him phenomenologically, but uh, psychologically and otherwise, he was drawn very much to the community. He was drawn very much to very uh, fundamental relationships, beginning, of course, with his lifelong relationship with uh, Marion, his partner, although she worked from the sidelines, and their children. And so uh, I think a good conversation with David, gazing out at the sky from the pier at Victoria Beach, allowed David to perceive the world in manifold ways. He didn't have to go anywhere else. Penner can be a Mennonite last name. Was he inspired at all by Mennonitism? I belong to that tribe as well. David uh, grew up in a fairly secular home. His, neither of his parents uh, were practicing Ukrainian Orthodox or Mennonite. In fact, David went to church on his own when he was growing up. I mean, he was drawn towards certain uh, spiritual values. So he ventured on his own to find those. But being Mennonite is something... It takes a while to work it out of you, you know. It's There's something genetic in the code. So I think certain aspects of the idea of a metaphysical world, whether you believe in God or not, and the aesthetic dimension and the ethical imperative, and of course, hard work, certainly were a part of David's being. What do you two know about his creation of Storefront Manitoba? What was his vision for that? Dan, do you know much about that? I do know he had a conversation or two with me when he was first thinking about starting it. David was a bit of a renegade. He did not always conform to what the RAIC might think an architect should be doing. And when he started a storefront, it was almost as if he was doing it as an outlaw organization in rebellion to the RAIC. And I I didn't get into it with him a lot, but uh, I just sort of had that sense from the conversation. I think it was an opportunity for all of those smaller, almost individual firms to uh, get a bit of a better grip on the landscape of downtown Winnipeg. I think he worked really hard in that direction, but Ed, Ed, maybe you can add to that. This was most interesting because it was one of the first projects that David and I worked on and collaborated on with others. We formed the Architecture Fringe Fest group composed of his dear friend Jack Como, also an an architect, and collaborator Richard Prinz. And a recent graduate then was Jarrett Klimchuk who's now the University of Manitoba's architect. Anyway, the group of us got together and we wanted to do something that would allow architects who were going to be showing up in Winnipeg in 2002 for the National Royal Architectural Institute of Canada Festival. We wanted to create a series of venues they could go to, which would allow them to get into the grain of Winnipeg. And so we thought about a series of venues that, that would uh, draw people's interest you know, into the wee hours. And then we had to sort out how we would create a map and some form of notation system to allow people to get to these venues. And and out of that came this idea of creating this urban marker. And that is something that Dan had a hand in because we devised this marker, which was a 60-foot tall construction scissor jack. We raised it and draped it with a perforated cloth and a bright lime green material and we inscribed 
various important sayings about architecture on it. And that traveled from venue to venue. The problem with that was, of course, that it had to be engineered somewhat because the nature of the structure, Dan. Right. <laughs> it really wasn't designed to be cladded uh, completely like that, which uh, is pretty prone to picking up a lot of wind load. And so uh, there were limitations as to how much wind that uh, structure could handle before it would run the risk of toppling. So we had to give David some strict criteria. Well, okay, you can use this under conditions as long as the wind doesn't exceed 30 miles an hour or something to that effect. So it put him in a position where he actually had to monitor the winds during that entire time frame to make sure that there wasn't any risk of damage to uh, the equipment or the people around it. It was his son who was probably 11 or 12 years old who had to to stay online monitoring the wind speed as we took it through these different venues. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was quite the event. But, you know, the, the point of the AFF was perhaps the first effort that David made to connect architecture with the public in a significant way. And that, of course, led to a whole series of related events. Storefront got off to a great start and and Winnipeg hosted the REIC in 2014. For that, the Architecture Fringe Fest again reformed. The group was larger, it included storefront members, and we devised a whole series of of wonderful venues, including the, the first round of the table for 1200, which was an idea that Johanna Hermé uh, from 546 brought to the table, so to speak. Among all the ambitious projects we undertook for that, uh, that was by far the most significant. And, and that, of course, is part of David's legacy because he took that forward. One of the world's longest dining tables. I was lucky enough, I think I attended three of them. The one that I remember best was on Esplanade Riel on the bridge. And we built this table set up where we had these ultra pink rice paper spheres over our table setting and our friends got completely aboard coming to the backyard to build this stuff they were so excited to be able to express themselves in that way and then to construct it on the site and then walk up and down the esplanade talking to the other people who were there looking at their tables discussing it thrilling to what we were seeing it all brought out this incredible creativity in everyone who was there. If you divide eight people into 1,200, how many tables is that? Dan, you're the guy who's good with math. (laughs) Where's my calculator? (laughs) Eight eight people into 12, so many tables. And and each table, people were invited, as you said, Terry, to come up with a design to somehow commemorate the event or or their personality or, or their company. People put a lot of effort into that and they got better each year. But I agree, the table for 1200 on the Esplanade was certainly uh, uh, exceptional. And, and you know, the funny thing about all of this was each year, you know, it's the changing of the seasons, the May weather is never guaranteed. Yet, <laughs> each of these, somehow, the skies parted. Even on these inclement days, the skies would part early enough in the afternoon to make the event uh, possible you know, you must think that there's something else going on here. What sense did you get of the vision of the kind of Winnipeg that he felt he was helping to create? Dan, what do you think of that? 
I think he wanted to try and allow diversity uh, in architecture. I think he always felt that the big firms didn't allow that kind of expression. And I think he worked hard to try and let the smaller firm, the individual, take a little bit more of a front seat position in the architecture in Winnipeg. And I think that was one of his thrusts. Ed, what about you? What are your thoughts on that, about the kind of Winnipeg he was working to create? He believed very much that architecture was a civic obligation and that every building should contribute to the built environment positively, not only sustainably, but also aesthetically, culturally, if you will. One of his people that he looked up to, and and we actually collaborated in a competition, was the late Michael Sorkin, a renowned American activist architect. And Michael wrote, architecture was a civic right, just as public safety was a, a civic right, so was architecture. And I think David took that to heart. He, he believed that and he encouraged his colleagues and, you know, for all of the work that he did within the uh, provincial chapter, the MAA, uh, sometimes, you know, frustratingly, for all involved, he thought to bring just a, a safer, more beautiful built world, uh, whatever scale he, he could be working at. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I looked at the transformation that happened in Central Park and at David's contribution to that. And the transformation of that inner city park, which used to be called Needle Park and other derogatory terms, David and others helped to bring that park back and reclaim it for the people who lived there and create a very welcoming place. And I spent a lot of time last summer hanging out at the market there, talking to the vendors, buying vegetables. And I felt like I was swimming in the world of David Penner. I loved that about being there. When, when you look at his other accomplishments, because he did the pavilion uh, at Central Park, the Bueller Center, the Windsor Park Library, the Little Red Library, Fountain Springs Housing, Mir Hotel, and uh, you mentioned, of course, Ed, his own place. Which of those really stand out for you? Each one contributes to a mosaic of works, and, and it's not easily to thread them all together, but generally there, there is a pattern. I think that the Dan and I were actually talking about the, the Little Red Library, which was a, a warming hut initially, and the whole warming hut phenomena in Winnipeg, which has international recognition, in which David has, has played a part as juror and so forth, he undertook the uh, making of a warming hut without permission, without approvals, simply because he had a good idea and he insisted that it merited being included. So with the help of Dan and others, they created this red cube with a membrane fabric and, and dragged it out on the ice, put some books in it, and called it the Little Red Library. And he asked my partner, Jane Bridal, to be its, who is a librarian, to be its librarian custodian while it was on the ice. After the ice thawed and it was removed, it found a new home on Michael Nesbitt's empty lot and became the Little Red Art Gallery. And it was used as a venue to uh, promote local artists. And thereafter, it was moved without 
a lot of questions being asked to a site on Hugo Street at Wellington Crescent, which is the entrance to the waterfront site uh, on the Assiniboine River, and it found a home there. And that little red library was then rehabilitated with uh, tempered glass and, and a secure red translucent film, and it continues to house books since the COVID pandemic in particular has been used regularly and it's fueled or filled, the books are filled by local patrons and it's just an amazing community resource. So here's something that is so small that has such a significant architectural impact. You know, as you tell that story, it kind of makes me well up and think of David and his passions and building community and caring for one another. Dan, though, I have to ask you, you're listed as the engineering uh, person for the little red <laughs> library. <laughs> what kind of engineering was required for a modest little building such as that? Well, David never tended not to use conventional materials if he had a chance to uh, stray a bit there. And, and that, that's an example. The, uh, the cladding uh, that he wanted to put on that was totally non-conventional and uh, you know, you couldn't, more often than not, you couldn't even find engineering properties to support it to make sure that, well, yeah, that thing's either going to stay there or it's just going to shred and blow away. So you're always working uh, a little bit in the unknown on some of these projects for David. His uh, his cottage would be another example, uh, even in addition to his, a little addition to his house. He, uh, he would be using materials that uh, certainly wouldn't be CSA approved. And so you're always going on a little bit out on the limb with David, with the engineering side of things. And maybe that's why he and I got along so well. We probably both tended to, uh, uh, wanted to try different things at different times in our careers. Dan, with respect to the uh, cottage that he um, had built that, that you engineered, it's composed primarily of a wood frame structure and it's clad with uh, corrugated uh, plastic panels, which he used not, well, he used glass windows and so forth, but he used that on the roof as well as the walls. You found a way to allow that through the code. But oh. yeah, somehow we did get it approved. Okay, perhaps that's not something we should discuss. <laughs> but I, I have to say that Marion had explained to me that in her recollection that if you're going to stand on the roof it could either take a snow load or a person, but not both at the same time in the same place. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> Terrible. What do you miss about him? Goodness. Yeah, you know, we, we spent a, a fair amount of time talking ab about architecture and about life. We had, you know, our children were of similar age and, uh, Marion and Jane and David and I, we all got along. And so, you know, as the years unfolded, we talked about many things, but we talked about architecture a lot. And he, as a practitioner and I, as a teacher, had differing views. And sometimes we, you know, we argued, but alternatively, we shared the same passions, I think. And, and what I uh, really miss and, and what I really appreciated about David was his, his capacity to daydream, uh, his capacity for free association in his, in his thought world. If we were to meet, we would meet late nights at the bar 
or we would walk our dogs. We both had Airedales. You know, the early conversation was often about simply getting out the craziest ideas that were on one's mind and then finding a way back. And David would always take the lead on that. That is something that's really important because, uh, and that has to do with the way, the method of his design process. You know, he, he uh, approached every project very much like an artist. Dan, what about you? What do you miss about him? I, I really miss the, uh, the creativity that he would come up with uh, in all of his different projects. I miss his willingness to uh, take a chance. And also, I, I, I miss his stubbornness that he, uh, he always would stay on the course that he would start and he would, he would make it happen no matter what. It was very rarely... Uh, that he would back off from uh, his design desires. And, and, and I really appreciated that with him. You know, contractors hated him for it. You know, his, uh, some of his buildings were not necessarily the easiest to build, but he would just work it through with them and, and he would make it happen. He would not give up on it. And uh, I really miss that determination. David was always exploring uh, new possibilities and his palette was materials. And so he, he was always interested in exploring material affordances of these things. And, and there's no way that some of the wonderful things that he achieved could have been done without this dialogue with Dan. You know, all of these things are subject to gravity and, and safety. And, and so, you know, without somebody like Dan to, to collaborate with, we wouldn't see some of these projects. I'm so glad that you two decided to join me on Prairie Design Lab because this podcast would never have happened unless David Penner came up with the idea and invited me out to lunch at Pizzeria Gusto and we talked and talked and talked and we're working on getting it going and then we lost him. So thank you for honoring his memory and for joining us today. I'm really, really grateful for this. Thank you. Terry, uh, thank you for... Uh Thank you for these podcasts and uh, bringing these voices to the city and to the country and beyond. It's really quite wonderful. You know, it's not unlike, you know, I'm not from Winnipeg originally, but I really get it. And uh, it's people like you as well who, who helped make this happen. Thank you thank very you. much. And thanks, Dan. Dan, well, thank you. Th well, thank you for the opportunity to speak about someone who was, you know, more than just a client who was actually had developed to become a really good friend. And he just disappeared on me so suddenly that I never really have had a chance to speak about him. So this has really been good for me. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us today. I'm grateful for this. Dan Wolfram is the president of Wolfram Engineering of Winnipeg. Edward Epp is a recently retired associate professor in the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba and the former chair of the Environmental Design Program there. The David Penner Endowment Fund has been established as a legacy to continue David's important work in the city. Donations will support the diverse range of programming offered by Storefront Manitoba. Storefront Manitoba is also collecting stories about David to use in an upcoming exhibit commemorating his work. You can share your story by emailing to info at storefrontmb.ca. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, faculty, students, 
and worldwide allies of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information about us, visit our website at prairiedesignlab.com. Special thanks this week to Jason Chan of the architecture faculty at the U of M. You can find us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. You can hear us on the radio at UMFM 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings in Winnipeg at 11.30 a.m. Thanks for listening. See you next week.